passage for this morning is Exodus 33. Last week we looked at Moses, we looked at Israel at their worst. We really saw them doing the worst thing they'd ever done, at least in our story so far. That is, they make this golden calf. And what they are doing is they're seeking, at first glance it doesn't sound as awful as it could be. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. They're by themselves. At least they want to be religious. At least they want to do something good. And, and there's a debate about whether they were trying to worship the cow or just if they're trying to create what they thought Yahweh was. But the biggest problem was that they were creating God in their image. And they were trying to formulate God as they saw him, not as he reveals himself. And that was the problem. There is a Simpsons, remember, where, where uh, Homer buys a, go- a bowling ball from Marge. But it fit him, and the holes fit him, right? And he said, oh, I guess I'll have to take that bowling ball. It's a funny Simpsons. Okay, too soon for a, a reference like that. That's their problem. They were making this cow for them. They weren't trying to worship Yahweh. But we also saw Moses at his height, right? He is mediating God's love. I mean, he is begging God to forgive them. He is saying, forgive them and, 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 and relent from turning from them, and he protects them. And ultimately, God does relent. And this week, we're going to see Moses continuing that process, Israel's turning, but we're going to see Moses delighting in the glory of God. And the question that I want us to be thinking about is this. Does your time in worship, whether here or privately with a group, leave you wanting more? Because what we're going to see this morning with Moses is every time he's with God, he wants more. He wants more of him. Let's look at Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. They would worship, comma, each at their tent door. Okay, they didn't worship each. My bad. Verse 11. This is really the best verse of this section. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent, 
And now here in verse 12, we pick up where verse 6 left off. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, this is God's response, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said, that's Moses, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are amazing, and we are torn. We want to see you, we want your glory, but we are often afraid like the Israelites. And I pray this morning we would see the boldness of Moses. I pray your Holy Spirit would reveal to us freshly that we are designed for intimacy with you. And I pray that would be our longing. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to start with a question. It's an annoying question. How is your walk with God? That's for John. A lot of people get tired of that question. It's kind of a faddish question. Like, tell me about your walk, brother. But it's not a bad question, and I'm going to revive that question. We should be asking each other, how is your relationship with God? If I told you I knew a famous person, I know Brad Pitt, what would you ask? Tell me about him. No. Where was he born? No. How do you know him? Like, what do you people do together? What, how do you spend time, right? When people know each other, we want to know how they spend time together, right? And so when you think about your relationship with significant people, you think in terms of what we do together, what things we like, how we know each other. And yet we come to God, and often we're very content with just knowing about him. We just want to learn the biographical information because it's dangerous. And I think often we hold back. We didn't get to this passage, but it's going to be included a little bit. That is, when Moses comes down from the mountain where God reveals himself, his face is shining, it's glowing. The people have him put a veil over his face because it's so overwhelming. And I think we can often fall into that same situation where we don't, we're sort of not sure how to handle the glory of God. So we put the veil over his face. How do we do that? And what I hope we see this morning is that God wants intimacy with us. And what makes it amazing, unlike human relationships where you might put yourself out there only to be rejected, God does not reject you. 
We're the ones that are rejecting him. We're the ones that are afraid of that rejection. So I hope we'll see this morning freshly that we can have an intimate relationship with God, and that should be the desire of our heart. So we're going to look at the need for his glory, the definition of his glory, the result of his glory, and the response to his glory. So the need for glory, the need for God's presence. It's interesting that when you look at what happens in 35, Israel has done an amazing change of direction. When Moses is on the mountain, and they realize he's been gone a long time, whoever instigated the, the, the calf making said, this man Moses, kind of ridiculing him, and never really referred to Yahweh at all. Well, here, Moses is telling them that God is going up with them. God's going to go up with you. You're going to get the land you want. I'm going to drive out the, all these nations, right? The Amorites, the Hittites, etc. I'm going to give you the land flowing with milk and honey. That's good news. But in verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Now, that's actually encouraging. Because most of us, when we think about our faith, not, I shouldn't say most of us, often we are tempted to only want the good stuff. I want to go to heaven. I want the blessings, right? But what they were mourning for is that God said, you are a stiff-necked people and I'm not going with you. You get all the good stuff, you just don't get me. And they were upset and they were grieved. They wanted his presence. And so the question is, are we interested in the presence of God in our walk with Christ? Is that what you're after? Or do you find yourself simply going through the motions of Christianity, getting kind of close, but not really wanting the presence of God in your life? That's the question that I hope will be on our minds this morning. In, verse, in chapter 33, verse 12, we see this amazing situation with Moses where he says in verse 13, did I say 12? I meant 13. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Hmm? Okay, if I have favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you that I may have favor in your sight. What's going on? It's not extremely clear, but here, here's how I would try to unpack that verse for us. Moses is recognizing he's saved, for lack of a better term. He, he's in. God knows him, right? We would call this justification. He's in. He's adopted. That's more than justification. It's You're now the son. But it's a once and for all thing. However, that justification, that being saved in Christ, doesn't mean that you're progressively growing in God, right? That's a separate thing. We call it sanctification. And so Moses, having spent immense time with God and developing this intimacy with him, is saying, now that I know you and you know me, I want to know your ways. I want to know more about you so that I might find favor. He doesn't mean that you'll accept me. He just means that I might walk with you, that I might be more like you. Also, he might be saying this, and this is important too, from the, his role as a mediator, that I might be able to bring Israel into favor with you. That I might be able to share you with Israel. That they might find favor with you again. And of course, that's always on the, um, at play here. So, glory is always wanting more. If you ever have taken a child and, and done something like oh, taking a young child and thrown them in the air or something, they giggle, what do they say? More, right? 
more, Daddy. Do it again. I want more of that. Um, why, what is it about us? We don't do something that's really fun one time. What do you do immediately? I want to do that again. And there's something about the glory of God that says, you want to do it again. You want more of it. And in that quote by Schaefer that we read earlier, you, you see him repeating that we are to seek the glory of God, right, with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, that we're built for that, and that should be our desire. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the confession that this church agrees with, if you want to know, what does Grace Church believe? Read the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you have any difficulty with it, call Doug. Well, the writers of the confession were brilliant, and they made two catechisms. One was longer, and one was shorter. The shorter catechism, which most adults think that's hard to memorize, was for children. So I challenge all the adults to learn the shorter catechism. The very first question, who can quote it? What is the chief end of man? Yes, Rebecca. The chief end of man, or the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Piper, John Piper, really borrowing from other theologians, have even augmented it a little risk, risk, with risk. The chief end of man is glorifying God by enjoying him. That they're one and the same. That when we enjoy God, we are glorifying him. When we are pursuing his glory, we are glorifying him in that process. So the question on our minds, hopefully, is what is the glory of God, right? What does this mean? That, that if there's this thing that, if this glory of God is something we're pursuing, we need it, we want more of it, what is it? Right here in um, verse 7. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's this kind of break in the flow of our chapter. 1 through 6, Israel is, is mourning. They've been, they're getting rid of their ornaments. They're, they've been told God's not going with them. In verse 12, Moses is interceding, say, please, go with Israel, go with us. But in 7 through 11, it, you have this sort of an aside talking about the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting is not the tabernacle tent. That's going to be constructed later, and we'll talk about that next week. So it's going to be really fun. Don't not come now. Oh, the tabernacle. I'm totally not going. Come. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about the tabernacle. You'll understand it. But this is a different tent. But in this tent, Moses gets to meet with God. And often when you hear the interactions between Moses and God, it leaves you wanting more because it doesn't. we don't have the details. We don't have all the information. But look at verse 11 in, in this meeting. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Face to face. If I asked you, if I mentioned a name of someone we mutually knew, you would imagine what? Their elbow? Their foot? Their face. The face is what we think of. The face is intimacy. And the, and the more you know someone, the longer you can look into their eyes and it not be awkward. Right? And so God uses face over and over to describe the relationship he has with Moses, face to face. And then he adds, as a man speaks to a friend. A friend. I was thinking about friendship, and I, often our children will come in, especially younger when they're younger, and say, I made a new friend. Right? Often it's a person they knew. But a child, it's when they play together on the playground. Right? It's that first time where all of a sudden they went from being this stranger to being real. I learned their name. And we both like the big toy or whatever. We hang from the monkey bars. And all of a sudden, this friendship is forged. And so friend, for God to say he and Moses were friends is amazing. And what you see is that this glory of God has to do with his very character 
and it draws you in. Have we defined the glory of God yet? Not quite, but we're getting there. But it's beautiful, it's friendly, it's, it's intimate. And then we see a little bit better definition, starting in verse 17. Where Moses, actually, verse 18, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And, and God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Show me your glory. God uses the synonym goodness. I think we know what the word goodness means. I think we understand goodness, right? You eat a piece of cake. Oh, I've heard people say this. Like, like that's, that's the definition of goodness, you know? In other words, when things are right, when things are pure in their, in their makeup, if you do something that you love, you would say that's goodness, right? God is what's behind all of that. In other words, God's glory is the way things are supposed to be. It's His very character. God's glory is the definition of goodness. Because God created everything, there's nothing good that exists that's not part of His character. Does that make sense? So when you have the Ten Commandments, they reflect His character. Right? So God is glorious. Now the problem, the challenge as we even build on this, is it's so beyond us to understand. So I just want to start wetting our appetites for this because it, it, it's the full expression you're after when you try to think about how much you love anything. It's why there's poetry. It's why there's rapture. Um, C.S. Lewis says that the praising of something is the final consummation of the goodness of that thing. Right? So you think, I enjoyed that process, like that ice cream cone. That, that was great, but what to cap that off, I have to do something. I tell you, this is the greatest ice cream cone I've ever had or whatever, right? Or more, I say, we should go have this together. I don't want to go by myself and have that. I want to bring a close person in, and we're going to enjoy that together, and then we're going to talk about how amazing it is, capping off the goodness of it. I'm trying to get this out of the realm of religious language for you, because it's too easy for you to think God's glory and tune out, you know? Sort of this, like, I'll never understand that. I'll never grasp that. But the essence of the glory of God is, you seeing the, the author and the beginning of all things good. Okay? God is glorious. I don't know if that defines it for you. But let me, let me try to unpack it this way. A biographer will study a person. They'll, they'll say things like, I got to know that person. Now, the person's probably dead. But they study all the letters. They read all the books. And, they, and, and they, they know a lot about the person. And they'll say things like, I know them. But they don't know them. In fact, I bet they would love to talk to someone who knew them well, right? If I'm a biographer, I'd love to talk to the spouse. Let's say there was a good marriage, maybe the Adams. And you talk to Abigail Adams, tell me about John Adams. She can't tell me about John Adams in the way she's experienced him. She's his wife. There's an intimacy that she can't tell me. She can use words that I might know from my life. But, sorry, we have a sound thing going on back here. But I need to actually experience John Adams for myself, although that's weird. The point is, Moses is showing us that he has this experience with God that is so glorious that it draws him in more. And the promise for you and I is God wants this for you. You and I were designed for this kind of intimacy for his glory. And, and quite frankly, this should be our passion, our longing in life. And when we have that, it will over, it'll overflow. I, I love that tent of meeting scene because you have all the people watching from their gate. And there goes Moses. And there comes this cloud. And they're having that amazing conversation. 
and everyone else is over here praying, probably a mixture of, that's really amazing, I wish I had that relationship with God, and wow, thankfully that's not me over there being consumed by that pillar of smoke. Is that how you're looking at people that are saints, that you read about, you hear about? Is it always out there? Or do you think it's possible for you to have that kind of relationship with God? I really, I mean, do you even want to know him and his glory? That's the question I'd like to have on our minds. I mean, is this something that we're, are we, are we content with the veiled face of Moses? Are we content with, I go to church, I hear Ryan do his thing, and I go home, and, and, and that's meaningful. But it's not, I don't, I don't want to have much more closeness to God than that. Is that where you are? I would be concerned if that's where you are. Because God is saying, when you know him, when you've experienced him, when you've come into his presence, you'll know it by wanting to go deeper. You'll know it by wanting more. And so we have this result. Look at the result of Moses. Moses, Moses says, I want to see your face. And God says, okay, I will do this thing for you. We're at the end of 33. I will show you my glory. I will show you my goodness. And then he says this. I will have mercy, or excuse me, verse 8, 19. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to you, sorry, to whom I have, am gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And it's an interesting phrase. Here God is saying, I will show you my glory, Moses. I will, I will come in and, and do the very thing you want, and I will pass before you, and I'll be gracious to whom I'm gracious and show mercy to whom I show mercy, implying that there's sin, that there's a need for redemption. And then he says this, you cannot see my face. Now a minute ago, he and God were talking face to face. Right? And all of a sudden he says, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. I was, I was listening to Tim Keller talk about this um, it was an interesting sermon, and he was explaining this part. And I remember leaning, I wanted to hear the best, here comes the best explanation for what this means. And here's his response. He says, what does this mean? I don't know. And I appreciated that, because my temptation is just to start telling you what I think it means. But he does know, I mean, we know some things, right? It's a hard thing to grasp. Why is God saying, you cannot see my face? What does that even mean? Does God have a face? It's a very difficult thing. But what God is telling Moses is, as close as we are, as intimate as this relationship has gone, more intimate than any other relationship that's, other, you know, that's ever existed since Adam, right? You can't fully know me without this rock, without this cleft. I've got to hide you. There, he says, I know a rock, and you'll stand on this rock. But then he comes and says, but I'm going to hide you in the rock. And from there, I'm going to pass by, and you'll see my back. Okay. And, and, and here's, here's the tension. The tension is, and I talked about this earlier, we want, we, on one hand we're praising God, we want His glory, we want to know Him, but we recognize something. We're sinful, right? I mean, the reality is Moses, even though he didn't build the golden calf, is fallen. If Moses wasn't fallen, he could walk in the cool of the day like Adam could, right? He could see God. But because Adam is fallen, like you and I, he needs a Savior. Does that make sense? And this is the tension of our passage. We are to want his glory, 
but it's scary. We're to want to know God personally and have this relationship, but we have to be hidden. And so we sing Rock of Ages. And there's several, when Doug and I were discussing it, we did, what tune do we want? There's quite a few tunes, and then this actual, the lyrics are different in this rendition, but, but just the concept that Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy ribbon sideways flow. In other words, Jesus, you're covering me. I think the hymn writer is correct in talking about Jesus is our rock that we are cleft in. And you find in John 17, a high priestly prayer, where Jesus says this, Jesus is about to die. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, give to give eternal life to whom you will give it. Sorry. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And he goes on to say, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, that is, they believed in Jesus, and I, they are yours now. We are united, he says. We are, they are one. Listen to how he describes it in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And what Jesus is sharing in that passage, as he's praying that, is that you and I, he prays for those that aren't, aren't alive yet. We, us, are being grafted in to that cleft, that rock. And what we have in Christ is complete, unfettered access to the Father. And so Schaefer's quote, what he's saying is, right now, you have that. The question is, are you believing you have that? If you're a Christian, it can be true of you, and yet you can believe that it's not true of you. In other words, you can, you can say, I believe in Jesus, but you can let your mind and heart be filled with the world. right? And you can be caught up in all of the world's ornaments. And that's what we find in our, in our passage. If you go back to Exodus 33, right there in verse 6, it says the people heard that God was not going to go with them, verse 4, and it was disastrous. And look at verse 6. Therefore the people, Israel, stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. In other words, part of their repentance was them realizing, I am clinging to the world's ornaments. Those ornaments were things that they used some of to make the golden calf, they were elements they took out of Egypt when they plundered the Egyptians, but they were using them as ornaments, really, to kind of emulate the life, the life they left, whether religiously. Most likely there was a religious connotation there. So they weren't just earrings and rings. You can wear your earrings and rings. But they were ways of saying, I'm not quite out of Egypt. And God wanted them to be completely out of Egypt and to walk with him. And that's what we're seeing. And then Moses, in this rock, is showing that Jesus has freed him to look at God and see his glory. And the people, too, will have that freedom. And so the question is, have you found Christ to free that tension for you? Do you look at, when you think about your time with the Lord, do you go nervously or do you go eagerly like Moses? Like, think about just a quiet time. Do you like that terminology? Maybe a worship time? What's the new, how do we want to say it? Let's come up with a modern term. Private worship, let's say. You open your Bible, you sit down, and there are these words on this page, right? 
How many of you are weeping tears at that point? Any? Or do you just feel the stoniness of your heart? I certainly do. And that's where I find hope in this passage is the reason the words threaten me is because God is threatening. Why is God threatening? Because I'm sinful. And the biggest mistake we make is we think either I should glorify God and be sinless or I have some sort of sinful, shameful feelings and therefore God's distant. And he's saying get into the cleft. Get in the rock. Get into Jesus. And so when we go to the Lord, we open Scripture, are you opening up in Christ? Are you opening it up as one who the prayer in John 17 has been fulfilled? Listen to, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. He's talking now. Remember, Moses comes off the mountain. His face is glowing. They want him to veil. And, and Paul is saying, we are delivering this message to you. Moses delivered a message, and he had to veil his face because their hearts were not believing. We're, I'm delivering you a message that you can look at, Paul is saying, where you can unveil your face. Listen to verse 15. Or verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So when we come to the Lord in our devotions, in our worship, we're coming in Christ. And our biggest mistake as Christians is we're trying to come on our own. We really do. We really sort of want to engage God and leave Jesus to the side. Right? And remember, the Israelites were sort of trying that with the calf. And that's why the tablets had to be broken, because they can't fulfill the law. Why are we trying to do it without Jesus? Why not just say, hey, I'm coming in the name of Jesus. Isn't that easy enough to do? Why don't you do that? Because it requires that you dig into this rock that's really sharp and painful. Right? Jesus is painful. All I mean by that is this. You have to die. Good news. Cheer up. Your quiet times are going to get really good because you get to die. In other words, you die to all of your own boasting. That's what makes our quiet times so boring. Because it means, as I'm opening up my Bible, I have to realize all the things I'm hoping in are useless. The promotion, the vacation, the way people like me or don't like me, or whatever, the reputation, those things are useless. It's me and God. And that's, that's scary. Because that means I've got to rely nakedly on Jesus. I've got to die. Now, when you do that, when you actually come to the Scripture and you do that, and the Spirit moves, you actually can begin to listen to the words of God. You can actually begin to look at the back of God and even the face of God in Christ. Now, we won't see His face until we go to heaven. But in Christ, we have full access. But it's painful. But it's beautiful as well. Are you finding that to be your testimony from time to time? I know that every morning you may not find that to be true, but are you opening your life up to him? Or are you trying to sort of go to God like the Israelites where you keep your Egyptian ways about you? The things you cling to. The rings you don't want to get rid of just yet. You have to go to him fully. Think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You have to be poor. Not financially. 
spiritually. Stop resting in your works. Lay your deadly doings down. Right? Lay the things you cling to at his feet. Go to Jesus. I promise you, when you do this, if you're a believer, that's the only way you can do it because Christ has to dwell in you through his spirit. But you can actually go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I need you. Reveal yourself to me. Show me what I'm clinging to. Show me the things I'm trying to hold on to that are hiding me from you. And he will. He wants to have that intimacy with you. He will reveal those things to you, but in a loving, gentle way. It feels like death, but it feels like life even more. Practically, as we close, we're just going to close practical stuff. It's summertime. And I don't know why, for me, it's like, hey, try new things. Learn something new. Read something different. I'd like to have, I'd like to challenge you, all of us, to open the scriptures daily. Find a time. See, Moses wasn't in the camp, hanging out. He had to go outside the camp for the tent of meeting. Now, there are other reasons, but he had to go there. Moses had to climb a mountain to get to God's glory. I'm not trying to make this sound like overly like go find the high point of Stillwater. That'd be kind of cool. I don't know where it is. But I'm saying you have to... Here, here's the thing, that the biggest conviction I've had lately, not the, one of the biggest, is we'll hear a sermon, we'll hear an idea, a spiritual concept, and then we'll assume that by osmosis it'll just happen. You have to take your Bible and spend 10 minutes reading it. Five minutes, 20 minutes, three hours. And you'll know you've done it when you want more. You'll know you're starting to get it when you want the time to continue. But you've got to go. You follow me? And if you, and here would be my recommendation. You read something that should be moving to you, a passage you've heard someone quote and it doesn't move you, Lord, show me this passage freshly. Read it again. Lord, show me what's wrong with me. Why does this not move me? Read it again. Repent. Read it again. Jesus, show me you. And he will. That's a promise. And this summer, I would encourage us, not that we're going to stop at the end of the summer, but to make that a habit that we would say, I spend time in my word every day. I actually have private devotions. And what about the rest of your life? Bring it to the Lord. That's when he, will, he wants intimacy, and you will see his glory, and you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, how hard it is to preach on something that's so distant and yet so amazing. Sometimes, Father, I feel like I've tasted your glory, and other times I feel like it's distant because of my sin. And Lord, we all long to look at you with unveiled faces. We all do want you. But Lord, we know that our hearts are wandering. We're more attracted to so many things on earth, and we're secretly afraid you'll reject us. But your gospel is true, that you love us. We are your children. Lord, you've promised us a land flowing with milk and honey, and your presence is with us, and we long for our home. And even now, as we move that direction, as we go with you, you're with us through your spirit. And you've given us your word, and you've given us church and the sacraments, and so many means of grace that we can come to you and experience you. But Father, I pray our hearts would be knitted to yours by faith. If there is someone here today who doesn't know you, let this make sense. I pray your beauty would be seen. I pray you would not be a stranger. 
Forgive us for making you a stranger. We love you, Jesus. Amen.